Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 81, Invasion. Before I start, I'd like to tell you that I'll be making what I hope is an exciting announcement at the end of this podcast, so listen all the way through, everyone. Last time, we recounted the story of the Great Purge and the millions of deaths ordered by Joseph Stalin and carried out by his henchmen many of whom ended up being executed themselves. The year is 1838, and the Great Purge has taken its toll on Russia, but it wasn't just in the homeland that the killings were taking place. Anywhere in the world there was an old Bolshevik. The NKVD was sent to take them out. Raskolnikov, Reis, Krivitsky, and of course Leon Trotsky were murdered on foreign soil. The terror had taken on an international flavor. A large number of scientists and engineers were arrested, but interestingly enough, many were spared the executioner's bullet. Stalin locked them away, but used them to design his war machine. Molotov writes the following about the arrests of these important people. Quote, people have said all sorts of things. Tupolev belonged to that part of the intelligentsia which the Soviet regime very much needed. But at the heart, they were very much against us. It was as natural as breathing to them. So a way was found to make sure that they had the best possible conditions. Let them eat cake, but don't let them out. Let them work, construct things the country needs, things for the army. By March of 1939, the 18th Congress was being held where Stalin admitted that the NKVD may have overstepped the terror. By April, Yezhov disappeared, sent to the horrific torture chamber known as the Sukhanov Prison. Then, quote, The sentence of death by shooting of Yezhov, Nikolai Ivanovich, has been carried out in the city of Moscow, February 4, 1940. Another purge now took place, a purge of the Yezhov subordinates in the NKVD who carried out the Great Terror of 1937 and 1938. Here is a snapshot of how absurdly the agents were taken out, as described by Radzinsky in his book on Stalin. Quote, We were in the office of the Moscow NKVD chief, a molded ceiling, walls with bas-reliefs, Venetian windows, in the mid-30s, the imposing, gray-haired occupant of this office was Reddin's. He was shot. His seat was taken by the purple-nosed, mad-eyed, inveterate drunkard Zakovsky, who had never heard of any punitive measure other than shooting. He was shot. At the beginning of 1939, the sadist N. Petrovsky moved in and shot himself three weeks later. He was replaced by Yakovitch, who was arrested the very next day, and shot. P. Karutsky appeared for two days, introducing himself on the first and shot himself on the second. Korovin, appointed next, soon vanished, as did his successor, Zuvralev, who was sent for by Beria and never returned. You can see slapstick comedians running like that in silent films. They appeared, flickered briefly, vanished. They were doing the killings, and they were being killed. While the NKVD was being gutted, Stalin decided in April of 1939 to 
rehabilitate over 327,000 people from the gulags. Men like Marshal Roksovsky, whose teeth had been knocked out during his torture and imprisonment, was released. Aircraft engineers like Tupolev, Polikarpov, as well as numerous scientists and other engineers, were also released. Stalin had to, as a new and frightening menace appeared on his eastern horizon, Adolf Hitler's ascendancy to power in Germany. Back in the early 30s, preparations were being made for a great war before Hitler's rise to power. Archival records suggest that Stalin was planning a war in Europe to foist communism on the conquered countries. This was to prove correct after 1945. In 1938, Stalin tried to negotiate with France and Great Britain, but it was all a grand ploy as he quickly began to secretly negotiate with Germany as well. He could see that Hitler was going to take Europe into war, a war comrade Stalin was going to finish. Joachim von Ribbentrop came to Moscow to make a deal with Stalin. There's a slight bit of humor. At one of the ceremonial dinners, Stalin proposed a toast to Kaganovich, one of the last remaining old Bolsheviks. Ribbentrop agreed drinking a toast to a Jew. The deal was set and is now known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty, and it was signed on August 23, 1939. Now, the next story, this is one that brings me a great deal of pride. My grandfather, William Schaus, was a concertmaster for the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra and was first chair in violin. He was a staunch anti-Nazi, which was a dangerous position to take. The story goes that he was visited by a colonel after the German invasion of Russia from the SS because of word getting out that he had said some not-so-nice things about Hitler. The colonel was furious with my grandfather and got even angrier when he noticed there was no picture of the Fuhrer on the walls of his apartment. He was warned that when they came back the next week, if a picture of Hitler was not prominently displayed, the entire Schaus family would be shipped to concentration camps, including my father. Calmly, my grandfather came up with a plan. When the SS colonel came back to visit my grandfather, escorted by a number of SS officers, he was brought to the living room where a picture of Hitler was indeed on the wall right next to a picture of Molotov and Ribbentrop signing the peace accord alongside, guess who, Joseph Stalin. The SS colonel could not arrest my grandfather, but left furious. My grandfather proceeded to get on the phone and call other members of the extended family and warn them, if you join the Nazi party, consider yourself out of the family forever. Only one cousin dared to join, and he was forced to, as his restaurant was next door to SS headquarters. Back to Russia and Germany. Quickly thereafter, on September 1st, 1939, just nine days after the signing of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty, Russia and Germany began the partition of Poland, with Germany invading its territory. On the 17th, assured that Germany would abide by the treaty and would stop at the agreed-upon line, the Red Army invaded. In between those dates, Great Britain and France declared war on Germany, and World War II began. 
Now, there is evidence that in October of 1939, Stalin and Hitler met in Lvov in a secret meeting. FBI memos signed by J. Edgar Hoover reported on it, and suspicious movements of Stalin seemed to confirm it. Two of the most evil men of the 20th century, who hated and distrusted each other, met face to face. The peace they discussed would not last long. On November 26, 1939, Stalin had his army invade Little Finland, but he was taken aback by the Red Army's utter failure. 200,000 Russian soldiers lost their lives, and 300,000 were either injured or missing. Despite the victory, Finland had to ask for peace with the USSR. Voroshilov, for his incompetent handling of the invasion, was kicked out of the commissariat, replaced by Simeon Timoshenko. Hitler was bemused by the ineffectiveness of the Soviet army. And Hitler, for his part, was blitzkrieging Europe. Denmark, Norway, Holland, Luxembourg, and France fell. Stalin grabbed former Russian Empire states in the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. His Soviet empire was beginning to take shape. What Stalin didn't know, but was fully prepared for, was that Hitler was already planning Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of Russia. Stalin had spies who kept telling him that an invasion was imminent. Historians have generally believed that Stalin was completely caught off guard by the invasion. New evidence suggests otherwise, as Stalin was really planning to attack Germany first. But events caused Hitler to attack before the Soviets because he needed oil to fuel his mechanized army. The targets were the oil fields of Romania, Ploesti. Stalin was amassing troops on the Romanian frontier. Despite the peace, both Hitler and the boss knew that it was only a matter of time that hostilities would break out. Stalin even said it in a speech on May 5, 1941, that, quote, there will be war and the enemy will be Germany. He was secure in his knowledge that there were 300 divisions of troops on his side with one million parachutists. What Stalin didn't know, because everyone was scared to tell him lest they be executed or sent to a gulag, was that most of the divisions were not nearly at full strength, and because of his purge of the officer corps, the leadership was still in tatters. I am of the belief that it was this knowledge that was held back and stopped the Soviet surprise attack in 1941 by the few remaining generals not purged, men like Volkogonov and Georgi Zhukov. Here is an excerpt from a document entitled Reflections on a Plan for the Strategic Deployment of the Armed Forces of the Soviet Union in the Event of War with Germany and Her Allies. It was a plan to invade Germany. Quote, At present, Germany and its allies can field 240 divisions against the USSR. For stalling the enemy and deploying our forces and attacking, our armies would beset the strategic objective of smashing the main forces of the German army and emerging by the 30th day of the operation along a front from Ostrolenko to Olmuk. To ensure the realization of the plan set out above, it is necessary, one, to carry out a secret mobilization of our forces, 
representing it as a call-up of reserve officers for training. Two, to carry out the secret concentration of troops nearer to the western frontier, on premise of moving them to summer camps. Three, to bring aircraft in secretly from outlying areas and concentrate them on forward airstrips, and to begin establishing rear services for the Air Force immediately. Many historians, including history nuts like myself, have long thought that Hitler's attack of Russia was a monumental and idiotic plan. But was it? If he knew that Stalin was planning to attack first, and he did know, why not trump the boss and surprise him instead? His blitzkrieg was working throughout Europe, so why not against Russia? Comrade Stalin was convinced that Hitler would be insane to attack midsummer 1941, with the Russian winter only four to five months away, and history proved that this would be folly. Ask Charles IX of Sweden and Napoleon Bonaparte. Stalin slept well. His generals did not. German diplomats were leaving Russia in droves, and still Stalin knew better. Then in one of those moments in history that sound like something that only a master genius fiction writer could conjure up, Stalin was asked about an expedition going on in Uzbekistan that was exploring the tomb of Tamerlane, the great Mongol warrior king. Mikhail Gerasimov, an expert in facial reconstruction from skeletal remains, asked the boss if he wanted the tomb opened and if he could recreate the face of the war god. The men in the bazaar in Samarkand warned that if Tamerlane's tomb was disturbed, that he would be resurrected in three days, and that he would lead an army against the offending nation. A local man at the site begged them not to open the sarcophagus. The Russians laughed. On June 19, 1941, the grand tomb of Tamerlane was opened, and his skull display to the filmmakers, who sent the images quickly up for Stalin to see. Reports began to flood into Moscow, announcing massive German troop movements. Stalin refused to believe them. They were simply German provocations. Molotov knew better, but he was either too scared or intimidated to argue at this time with the boss. On June 22, 1941, Three days after Tamerlane's tomb was disturbed, at 3.30 a.m., German forces began their bombing of Belarus. At 4 a.m., they began bombing Kiev and Sevastopol. Georgi Zhukov said this in his memoirs on how they informed the sleeping Stalin. Quote, the commissar ordered me to ring Stalin. The man on duty asked me in a sleepy voice, Who's calling? Zhukov, chief of staff. Please connect me with Comrade Stalin. It's urgent. What? Right now? Comrade Stalin is sleeping. Wake him up immediately. The Germans are bombing our cities. As Radzinski puts the following moments, quote, Three minutes later, Stalin was on the telephone. Zhukov reported the situation and was answered by silence. Did you understand what I said? Zhukov asked. Again. There was silence. And finally Stalin said, Where's the commissar? Bring him down to the Kremlin. Tell Poskrebyshev to summon the whole Politburo.
Thus began the war that was to take millions of German and Russian lives. A war that was as brutal as any in human history. Join me next time as we recount the start of the great battle between Germany and the USSR. Today's event I will focus on was suggested to me by longtime podcast listener Alexi. It is the defense of the Brest Fortress. When the Germans began Operation Barbarossa, they had planned to sweep through Poland and the Ukraine in a blitzkrieg manner, just as they had in Western Europe. The Brest Fortress had been captured by the Germans in 1939 when they invaded Poland, but it was given back to the Russians as part of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Now the Germans were determined to get back what they believed was by all rights theirs. They didn't think in their wildest dreams it would be as hard as it turned out to be. General Fritz Schlieper was the commander of approximately 20,000 crack German troops whose job it was to smash through the Brest Forest on way to blitzkrieging through Soviet Red Army lines. It was planned to only take 12 hours to get through this spot, but it unexpectedly took eight days and much longer to ferret out all the soldiers. On the Soviet side, the commanders included Colonel Mikhail Popsui Shapko, General Ivan Lazarenko, Pyotr Gavrilov, Ivan Zubachyov, and Yefem Fomin, along with about 3,000 soldiers and NKVD men, along with a number of families, which brought the total number of people in the fortress to around 7,500. Bombardment started by surprise on the morning of June 22, 1941, which inflicted heavy damage and casualties. An assault by German infantry came about a half an hour after the bombardment, but was fought off by the brave men in the fortress. From here, the Germans decided to lay siege to the well-defended fort. Here is an excerpt from General Schlieper's report to high command. Quote, It was impossible to advance here with only infantry at our disposal because the highly organized rifle and machine gun fire from the deep gum emplacements and horseshoe-shaped yard cut down anyone who approached. There was only one solution, to force the Soviets to capitulate through hunger and thirst. We were ready to use any means available to exhaust them. Our offers to give themselves up were unsuccessful. The resistance inside the fortress was stiff and included help from women and children, as well as the soldiers. They were determined to keep the Germans at bay for as long as they could, certain that this was the end of their lives, but they were fighting for the motherland. By June 30th, with casualties mounting, the main fighting ended with a number of soldiers fleeing, but more being captured or dead. In all, the Soviets suffered an estimated 7,000 casualties, with about 400 men captured and sent to Nazi concentration camps. The Germans suffered a little more than 400 casualties. After the fortress was secured, isolated defenders continued sniping and harassing German troops throughout late July, early August. When Hitler and Mussolini arrived to visit the fortress in August of 1941, there was very heavy security as there were still some remaining defenders in the area. Today, there is a museum of the defense of the Brest Fortress as well as a memorial for all the brave men, women, and children who fought there. Well, I hope you liked today's podcast. I'd like to announce that I'm starting a new website 
dedicated to this podcast in Russian history in general. In the next few weeks, I will be launching www.russianrulershistory.com. It will have photos, maps, letters, as well as links to what I hope to have sometime this summer, my ebook on Russian history. The first book will be a written version of the podcast from Episode 1 to Peter the Great. Hope to hear from all of you on our Facebook fan page at Russian Rulers History Podcast, where you can ask a question, make a suggestion, or leave a comment. But now, as always, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.